Hello and welcome to Motive Insights, the Motive Partners podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. I'm Worth Newman from the investment team at Motive Partners. And I'm Corey Rainbow, and I run our diligence and VCP teams at Motive Create. And Worth and I are here to introduce Motive's new exciting investment in FNZ before handing it over to our founding partner, Rob, and Adrian, the CEO and founder of FNZ. So to that, Worth, why don't you start by giving our audience an overview of FNZ, what it is, and some of its core capabilities? Yeah, of course, Corey. So FNZ offers a platform as a service operation to combine software and services to help financial institutions outsource their wealth management back offices and focus on their core business. And frequently, FNZ starts in the back office and then expands from there. And also, it might be useful just to understand and give a bit of context as to where some of our listeners may have directly or indirectly either touched or leveraged on the FNZ technology. Yes, certainly. I realize that the idea of back office and wealth management outsourcing feels a bit remote, but it actually really does impact the day-to-day life of consumers. Over 20 million customers are served by FNZ's platform today, and many of them are here in the United Kingdom. So where they would interact with FNZ, if they have, say, a UK banker or wealth manager, where they have assets that they invest, FNZ would be the one powering the investment offering for that wealth manager or bank. So when they buy securities, when they manage their portfolio, receive statements, need to clear trades, settlement dates, all of these things that happen in the background of investing day to day, and we don't even think of, that's the type of solution that FNZ powers. So you may think that you're interacting with your bank or wealth manager, but in fact, your investments are being powered by FNZ. It's really the backbone of a number of our international wealth clients, right? Exactly. The business of managing wealth management is very challenging. There's a lot that needs to happen in the background to make sure that taxes, statements, settlements all happen seamlessly for the customer. And it's something we never need to worry about in our day-to-day life. And so FNZ will work behind the brands of all of these major banks and wealth managers to ensure that it happens seamlessly for customers. And Corey, I think we can agree that we both look at a large number of investment opportunities every year, but this one was was really special. Yeah, it was. And yeah, I think this is probably 100 for the year, right? And I'm sure we'll go into a bit more detail about what specifically we liked about this investment. For me, from a technology perspective, it really ticked all the boxes straight away during diligence. From a people perspective, it's a business with really strong leadership that have a really clear strategy that the whole team buy into. And it's got a great culture that is felt the whole way across the business. From a product perspective, it's end-to-end and functionally really rich compared to the market and the other investment opportunities we've seen in this space. And from a technology architecture perspective, it's just a really, really well-architected platform that will not only support the business today, but serve for the growth that we expect to see in the future. And to that point, worth actually, maybe it's worth taking our audience and listeners through the growth strategies and levers we expected to see as part of this investment. Certainly, Corey. And I would just start by pointing out that this was a really landmark transaction for us within Motive Capital Fund 2. Motive, along with our partner CPPIB, contributed $1.4 billion of primary capital into the company and valued it at over $20 billion at a pre-money valuation. And we did that because, to your point, there are so many exciting growth vectors for the company. I would split the growth vectors between the core ones and then the, the additional markets and areas for growth. So within FNZ's core, FNZ is a long-term critical part of its clients' infrastructure. 
Once a customer implements FNZ and spends that time and effort for FNZ to take over a significant part of their operations, they just don't leave. And then as FNZ grows within their client, they benefit from the market performance of that client and also the additional assets that flow onto the platform. And finally, in the core side, FNZ expands its core product offering within its clients, frequently starting within the back office and then moving to other front and middle office modules as well. And that's just the growth vectors in the core. Beyond the core, FNZ operates in a large market. So we see their core market as about $100 trillion of assets under administration. And FNZ represents about 1% of that today. But beyond those markets, FNZ has additional opportunities for additional geographic expansion. So FNZ has entered over a dozen countries since 2018. And we're particularly excited as part of the Motive and CPPIB investment to help them enter the North American market. And finally, FNZ has grown through significant M&A as well, as they've acquired businesses that have helped them grow their core platform and integrate them, and also businesses that have helped them expand their product offering more broadly. So really with these six growth vectors all coming together to help create a really attractive profile that makes us enthusiastic about our investment thesis here. However, at Motive, as we know, It's not just an investment thesis or a financial model that drives our decision. Our technology diligence that Corey and his team run is a critical part of the investment decision. So Corey, can you just tell us a little more about the work you did on FNZ and what you found? Yeah, definitely. And as you can kind of tell from my initial comments, we liked a lot about this company. And we found out pretty quickly during diligence, some of those market leading capabilities that we've already alluded to. So when you ask me what I really like about the products and technology, first and foremost, it's built with a clear strategy and vision in mind, like I said earlier. You know, and that is really to, as effortlessly and seamlessly as possible, provide all those boring back office capabilities back to the wealth manager of the firm so they can really focus on the things that make their business exciting and differentiated in the market. You know, as I said, that vision and DNA is embedded in all the teams we spoke to through diligence. And it's clearly seen across the architecture of tech stack. It just does the basics really, really well. It's robust. It's really functionally rich in those areas. And it's all in a single platform connected for a bunch of APIs that makes it really, really easy to connect to. Now, secondly, the management team is really, really strong. And you'll hear from, from Adrian in a second. But they've consistently evidenced the ability to identify areas where the platform isn't as strong or needs developing. And they've executed on those strategies, whether that be for organic or non-organic means. So a good example of this is the recent acquisition. So in this market, as you know, Worth, the biggest challenge is end-user integration. It's the most complex area of any business. The FNZ management team identified that really quickly and acquired Appway to offer a low-code solution to really minimize those configuration complexities and reduce the implementation timeframes to the end consumer. And finally, Worth, whilst your specific question was on what I liked about the technology, what we looked at in the technology space, technology is really just an enabler here for FNZ. Alongside the strong software, they provide world-class outsourcing capabilities, e.g. people, and complex implementation services to really outsource the whole back office process and integration process, really providing a turnkey solution. So it's just super easy to connect to and use. You know, so we got pretty quickly excited about this asset and not only the value it brings to the portfolio, but to the motive ecosystem. Thanks, Corey. I mean, that, I, it sounds like a very positive read from a tech diligence perspective, really positive from all the growth vectors that we look at. So I think our listeners can see why this was such a landmark and interesting transaction for our firm. But now, without any further ado, I have the pleasure of introducing the founder of Motive, Rob Havart, and the founder of FNZ, Adrian Durham, to tell you more about FNZ's journey. 
Hey, Worth, thank you very much for this kind introduction. I think this is going to be a special one. I am uh, honored and very pleased to be able to have a, what I would call a, a special conversation with what I think is a very special person. It takes a lifetime to meet some entrepreneurs where you think they are special. And I am very, very pleased to be able to say that, and you'll hear it yourself. But what Aiden has done historically and what he's planning on doing, hopefully with a little bit of help with motive is extraordinary. And one of the main reasons why I think it's extraordinary is because he has had a passion for a very long time, and he has been able to translate that into a company that Worth was introducing called FNZ. It had an incredible journey since uh, Adrian found the business in 2003 in New Zealand. It spans over 21 countries, 4,000 employees, and serves 650 financial institutions, and more importantly, 8,000 wealth management firms. Can you tell us a bit more, Adrian, about how you started FNZ and and then a moment in time, when did you realize that FNZ would become one of the key global providers in our industry? Yeah, sure. So firstly, thank you very much for the kind introduction. And it's fantastic to be here today and have this conversation. So at the time I started FNZ, I was actually working at an investment bank in New Zealand. been doing that for a few years and had kind of got a little bit bored of investment banking sort of in my view, very well-paid consultancy, and you don't ever get to build anything, and I wanted to build something. So I had a look around, I think, from the top floor of the building, the investment bank we were working in, a couple of floors down, and they had a wealth management division. And this wealth management division was a very good wealth management division. At the time, it was part of what then was called CSVS Boston. It's not anymore. It's been through several MBOs. But it was a very good wealth management division, but really struggled with their infrastructure and their back office and their technology. You know, they had a global multi-asset, multi-currency offering, and they struggled to deliver that in the back office, certainly through legacy infrastructure, spreadsheets, a lot of manual processing, and a huge amount of time creating the basic things that you need in wealth management to share with clients, such as valuation, asset allocation, performance report. So firstly, I wanted to do something different. Secondly, I saw that there was a problem not far removed from where I was currently working that needed a solution. Thirdly, this was in 2003 when the whole concept of, you know, absolutely standard today, but web delivered services then was new. It was something that was just getting underway. This is well before Amazon and Azure and everybody else came to market. And I thought that was extremely well suited to this particular industry because wealth management is basically just data. And so being able to leverage the internet to deliver something that was based around data and solve what was clearly a problem, certainly at my then employer, all those things came together quite naturally. And so I effectively persuaded my then employer that I'd had enough of investment banking and they could get rid of me. I persuaded them to become my first customer. And then we went around building a solution and then we, after having successfully deployed it there, we, we then expanded in New Zealand. That being a very small and remote market takes about 10 months and then there's no more New Zealand. So you have to expand internationally. And that actually is a key thing that we did very, very early on because we had to, but actually stood us in good stead as we expanded the business globally later and we effectively took this solution worldwide. So that's the beginning of this firm. Unbelievably impressive story. But maybe some of our listeners don't really understand what you do. So spend a few minutes on what is FNZ to today. And, and some people might not even know that they're being powered by FNZ because you are literally almost everywhere these days. So you want to spend a few minutes on that? Sure. Effectively, we go to any financial institution, be that a bank, an insurance company, an asset manager, or a pure play wealth manager. So anyone who operates in or has a division that is relevant to wealth management. 
And we say to that institution, really what makes you important in the market is not where you're currently spending most of your time and investment. What makes you important to your clients is your client proposition, how you manage your assets, how you give them advice, how you deliver performance, how you meet your clients' goals. But you are reliant on this infrastructure, this back office infrastructure for executing trades, settling those trades, providing custody, asset servicing, corporate actions, and so on. And actually, you spend a huge amount of your time and energy on that back office. And that back office doesn't actually work that well in terms of how it solves the problem for your customers. It's often very dated technology, not particularly digital, expensive to maintain, and particularly to change. So what we go is we say to them, give us all of that. We take over the back office, which is often based on 20 or 30 different pieces of legacy technology and a lot of spreadsheets and other things, keeping it all together. They hand that over to us, both the technology and the responsibility for the people and services in the back office. We take that over, we move it onto a modern platform, and we serve it back to our customer, the institution, through a series of APIs or electronic interfaces that puts them in control as the thing that does differentiate them in the market. Their client proposition, how they advise their clients, how they report to their clients, and makes the back office something which is seamless, transparent, and integrated in real time into their proposition. So it's it's no longer a barrier to how they build their business, provide a high quality service to their clients. So not just digital, but personalized and also typically more cost efficient as well. That's at the core of what we do. So Adrian, and I'm privileged to be on your board and to have be able to invest in you. When we were doing our homework, what really in a sort of positive way shocked me, sort of like and, and super impressed me, your ability to go into different countries. And to do, because when people talk about back office, that's the hard part. And I would almost argue that's the brilliance about your strategy, by the way, that a lot of people think about these things, but are able to execute. So here you are, $1 trillion assets later, with tremendous growth keep going. What's the secret sauce, in your opinion, to be able for you to have cracked the code and keep keep growing at such, such a clip with such complexity? Firstly, the heart of our model is a B2B model. So... From the very outset, we took the view that in financial services, actually, the end client does trust the institution they deal with, whether that's a a bank, a wealth manager, an insurance company. These are big brands with big balance sheets. They've typically been operating for a long time, and they have built trusted relationships with their clients. So the first part of, I think, what made us successful is we said from the beginning, we're B2B. We won't try and disrupt those relationships. Rather, we'll work with the provider of those relationships and wealth management to enhance them. And I think B2B in this space makes it possible to grow very quickly because as long as you persuade your your institutional customer that you're the right partner, you can onboard hundreds of billions of assets and millions of customers in a single deal. You repeat that 10, 20, 50, or a few hundred times, and you can rapidly build scale and market share. So I think that was firstly very core to what made us successful. I think the second thing was We identified a part of the value chain and wealth management is a very long, fragmented and complex value chain, as you pointed out. We identified the piece which actually people care the least about. If you go to the client, does the client really care about the back office? Only when it doesn't work. When it works, they actually don't see it. And all the things they care about are the things I talked about before, the trusted relationship, the quality of the reporting, the quality of the advice and so on. So we took the piece that people should care about the least. And we said, we'll take that off your hands, we'll do it better, and we'll empower and enable you to do the things that you do care about. So I think picking the right part of the value chain to focus on and approaching it in a B2B way 
more than anything else, I think those are the two important things. I think starting that journey was still really difficult because for us to go as a startup company to a very large institution and say, we will take responsibility for your assets, your client data, and your core back office processes. Now, the beginning of that journey is extremely difficult. But then as you get scale, it's very easy now to go to anyone. And you know, 99% of people in wealth management worldwide would actually have less assets by themselves and we do an aggregate. So we can say, well, we're a scale player. We're a safer pair of hands actually than you are. And it's a more compelling argument, which is, I think, a key reason why as we've grown bigger, we've actually scaled faster. The, the growth has accelerated because as you get bigger in the space that we're in, you can win bigger customers because you yourself become a trusted partner in a way which you're not when you're a small company in a space which is based around processing, risk, compliance, asset security, and client data. Yeah. I mean, I think having been in this business for quite a while, it's still exceptional how you've been able also to kind of think cross-country or cross-location, because there's one thing to be a dominant in a certain location, as you know, because there, there's no such thing as Europe and there's no such thing as uh, North America, for that matter, either. So we will talk a bit about that later. But before we go there, let's spend a few minutes on, you had a phenomenal journey, your growth has been exceptional. And at one point in time, you decide last year to do a capital round. And I'm sure that a lot of people knocked on your door. There was a proper process. We were part of it. So tell me a bit about that. And you know what I'm going to ask you is why Why did you select the CPPIB and Motive together? And how do you look back at that? What was your experience and why Motive and CPPIB? Yeah, so it was actually when we were an 18, roughly 18-year-old 18 firm. And that was actually the first time we'd raised primary capital. We'd had many changes in the past of shareholders through secondary market process, but uh, this is the first time we raised primary capital. And I mean, we didn't necessarily need the capital, although we can certainly put it to good use. But what we really wanted to do was bring on a partner that could help take us to the next level of growth. And I think in the past, we'd had many, many private equity firms who'd been investors in the company. They had been good investors, but generally they were diversified firms. They weren't specialists in wealth management and they didn't bring necessarily any particular sector-specific knowledge. So I think this time we were really looking for someone who could help us go to the next level of scale, I think particularly in the US, which was actually the one market we really hadn't focused on in our history, which I think actually was probably lucky that we hadn't until that point because it's a much more competitive market than all the others we had thrived in. But really, we were looking for someone that was a specialist in wealth management, really had deep knowledge of and experience of this sector specifically, and therefore could help us make the right strategic calls, help us decide you know, which were the right things to focus on and not. And that takes a lot of experience. And so actually... What we found was that, you know, the number of people who could bring that experience to us rapidly became a very small number and really only noted, I would say, at the end of the day. I mean, everybody else always professes to be able to bring on expertise to help you. But actually, what impressed me about Motive from the get-go was that it was a firm which just knew about wealth management. And that was mainly because all the people we talked to in Motive had done nothing else for a long time. And that's something which, you know, very rapidly became apparent. So that actually was the main reason. I think it was a combination of CPP and motive. And that also was an important factor. We've had very good experience in the past with other pension and sovereign wealth funds because they genuinely have a authentic long-term purpose. They're structurally set up to fund long-term liabilities. So they therefore have a long-term investment focus. That also has served us well in the past. And so for me, it was actually an unbeatable combination 
combining structurally long-term focus from an investment standpoint and investment horizon standpoint with uniquely after we went through a very wide process of maybe starting with 70 or 80 potential interest and investors actually was unique that Motive had this, I think, deep sector expertise that we not only didn't see anywhere else in this process, but actually having been through seven or eight different private equity owners over the last 16 or 17 years, hadn't hadn't seen in any other firm prior. And the two together was was a unique and compelling combination from my perspective. On that note, so big ambitions for the United States. I don't say North America because, as you know, you've been very successful in North America as a part of North America. So tell me a bit about those ambitions. And we have a lot of U.S. audience here. So talk a bit more about your ambition and and what the potential is here, in your opinion. Yeah. An important point about wealth management and the U.S. is that the U.S. is half of the world's wealth management market. So if you add up all of the world's assets that are accessible or addressable from a wealth management standpoint, it's roughly... 80 trillion and roughly half of that 40 trillion is in one country, which is the United States. So if you want to be global, as we very much do, then you cannot do that without having a significant footprint in the US. And that was partly why we raised capital for the first time in any meaningful way in our history. It was certainly why we brought on Motive and those two things together combined with what we bring to the table. So three things I think is what is required to be successful in the US. So the US is is large, the scale always comes complexity and competition in this case. I mean, most of the rest of the world is relatively uncompetitive in this space, the space we're in. That's not true in the US. At the same time, the US hasn't actually solved the problems that we solve. The underlying core infrastructure in this space in the US is just as legacy, if not more legacy than anywhere else. That's certainly also closely related to the fact that it's a scale market and a complex market because when things are large and complicated, changing them is harder. So that is to say that for us, the opportunity is just as compelling as the drivers that have made us successful in other markets. If anything, even more so because it's a single market with the same legacy challenges as we've successfully solved elsewhere, albeit with significantly more scale, complexity and competition. So I think since we've started focusing on on the US in the last 12 to 18 months, I'd also say it's a a very open market, much more so than many European institutions open in the sense that people genuinely want to solve problems. They're, They're willing to look at innovative solutions in a way that we've often struggled to persuade people to do in European markets. And so you know, we're extremely excited about this confluence of drivers and factors in the US, not least of which is, is the scale opportunity and our ability to succeed in them. And you know, we expect to make good progress over the coming months. And for those who are listening and those who are in our industry, I really urge them to reach out to uh, FNZ to listen to the story because it's extremely compelling in the US. And having been very operational in the US for a long time, this is a breath of fresh air with not only the intention, but actually the goodies to deliver at scale what is necessary to transform a market. And let's talk about that. So transforming markets, transforming infrastructures. Where is FNZ 10 years from now, Adrian? We're still together having fun and we're still buddies, but where is uh, FNZ in 10 years from now? Yeah, so certainly our, our vision and what we're seeking to achieve is to be one of the what is likely to be a small number of global infrastructure players in the wealth management sector. If you look at all the various industries that are global or even those that are not global, wealth management by sheer virtue of the number of participants in it, the degree to which the value chain is fragmented, 
and underlying it, the fact that at the end of the day, it's just data. So it is naturally a global sector, you know, has an enormous amount of scale. And we want to be the largest provider of back office infrastructure in that industry. In the same way that you see other major platforms and other industries have globalized and you know, in each case, you, you never have one player, but you have two or three who have a leading position. We want to be one of those in this sector. I think the other key thing we want to do, uh, you know, I've mentioned fragmentation a lot, and it is a very fragmented sector. You know, there's tens of thousands of intermediaries, hundreds of thousands of intermediaries worldwide. There's obviously hundreds of millions of, of investors and customers, but there's also tens of thousands of people at the other end of the value chain, the manufacturers, or in this case, managers of assets people who deliver performance and diversification and, you know, connecting that end-to-end. One of the reasons we focused on infrastructure is that those people are not very connected today. If I am the manufacturer of an asset management product, as a fund manager, I'm disintermediated four or five times from my the person who actually buys my product. I really have very little idea what they buy, why they buy it, how I can improve the outcomes for what is ultimately my client. And as you will know, in any other industry, that's unheard of. So I think one of the key benefits we can bring by genuinely being a global platform in this space is properly connecting consumers and manufacturers in a way which they currently are not, and thereby helping to serve both ends of this value chain much better, improve the transparency end-to-end, the visibility end-to-end, and therefore the products and services. And I think that is something which, again, is really missing in this sector you know, overall, obviously, and there are some specific cases where it functions well, but on average, I think it functions badly. And that's, you know, a problem that we can solve as well. So I think globalizing, obviously, and being one of the, the leading players in this space, but using that to solve a real problem that the industry has, which is a super fragmented and just intermediate value chain. And those are the two problems that we'd like to solve over the coming maybe 10 years is a little bit long for me, about the five to 10 year range. So maybe more importantly, before we go into some, I have a few personal questions. I know you, Adrian, as such a successful entrepreneur, but the market has changed since we spoke, as you know, some people are risks off and then, then there's a whole different world. Uh, what can impact does that have in your, in your business and for your clients? And how do you feel about that? I think more broadly, the business model which we bring to our customers is one that is more efficient, delivers more operating leverage, and enables people to focus on their clients and not what should be commoditized infrastructure behind the scenes. So it is a model which, in what is probably more uncertain times, more market volatility and less obvious growth going forwards, it is something which actually therefore brings a bigger benefit to our B2B partners and that is market circumstances under which we normally thrive for that reason and also bring a a benefit at this point to customers that they really need. When we all live in strong markets and everything is going well, there's less impetus and necessity to necessarily change digitization, cost efficiency, and a better customer service overall, which is, I think, a key part of what we enable is more important, I think, in the sort of macro environment we'll see over the next three to five years. And that will be, I think, an opportunity for our customers and therefore obviously good for us as well. And so I think overall, having seen a few of these in the past from a macro standpoint, you know, we feel you know more positive, if anything, about the coming three to five years. And we think it's a good opportunity, not just for us, but those partners of ours in the future. Yeah, if anything, to your point, people are now finally understanding that everything's not going to continue to go up. So they also have to be innovative and efficient at the same time. Yeah. One question about culture, and then I come to you. So 
If you grow such a successful company, a trillion dollars in assets in all different countries, different nationalities, different skills, different capability, I don't know if there's a silver bullet, but how do you keep the culture going? And what do you specifically do about keeping the culture going? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's an extremely, firstly, it's an extremely hard challenge. And I wouldn't say that we've always been successful at that or necessarily even that successful today. But I think you know, there's a huge change that happens when you have all of your employees in one building to the point where you have your employees, in our case, spread around at least 50 or 60 different buildings in many countries. And so what makes culture unified and successful at that point is completely different from what it did earlier. And I think that's one of the hardest things to adapt to in a growing company, particularly one in our case that is very international, always has been very international and therefore very decentralized, i.e. there's not one huge office or headquarters somewhere with thousands of people in it. I think the largest office we have, we have roughly 5,000 employees, and I think the largest office has maybe three or 400. So we're very decentralized. And that was a kind of long way. How do we actually manage that from a cultural standpoint? It's a huge amount of communication. I think, firstly, you know, we very much embrace the virtual world rather than try and fight it. You can't possibly do everything in person. We've always been a very virtual company. And really, you know, even prior to things like the health crisis of the last two years, you would have seen a huge amount of remote collaboration across many different time zones and locations. And that's always been part of our DNA. Therefore, we do hundreds of town halls every year at every level of the firm, even in different languages, in different countries, in different regions, and supplement that with a large amount of virtual online communication. And also, I hope, a lot of clarity and you know, written and verbally communicated clarity about what our culture is and what's important and what's not important. And as little prevarication around that as possible, I think if you're virtual, you have to also be clear and succinct. So that's how we typically aim to manage it. I would also say it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Now, I think the power of your culture, having observed it, is this, this unbelievable appetite for change and transformation and the willingness to not maybe prove people wrong, but certainly prove that there's a different way. On that topic, I promised my last question, but I looked last time at how many people listen to these podcasts and I was surprised about how many young people qualified as sort of entrepreneurs or people who look up to older successful people. <laughs> Sorry to say that, Adrian. But what uh, advice? I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things you can give to somebody who is in the beginning of their career. So all that success, everywhere you've lived historically, you're also somebody, by the way, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, you move where your business is, which I think is a phenomenal concept. And you've got this energy and vision and ability to execute. So what advice? to young people listening to this, entrepreneurs, people who might work for you one day, might work for your clients and look at all that success. What's the advice Adrian gives? Yeah, well, firstly, I'm just having to adjust to being characterized as the oldest successful person. So thanks for that, Rob. You're welcome. I, I needed to do that. There was, there was something in that question. <laughs> that alone is a psychological adjustment. But um, look, I think being an entrepreneur is the most rewarding thing, which firstly anybody can do. I think particularly, uh, you know, what I remember is the early years of being an on, on entrepreneur, particularly having a committed and passionate team around you is, as a life experience, one of the best things you can ever do. I think secondly, as you go into being successful and growing, I think the, the second most rewarding thing is that it's a world which constantly changes and doesn't just change a little bit, but regularly the journey is a 180 degree change in terms of what you do personally, in terms of the team that you have around you, in terms of how you engage and what makes you successful is, is constantly changing and dramatically so. And I think 
that's the second most you know interesting thing about this journey. So it's very hard, I think, generically to provide you know advice. I think the most often cited piece of advice, but also the one I think that is the truest, is you have to be genuinely passionate about what you're doing. You have to get a fantastic team of people around you. It's a team sport, not an individual sport. And in fact, there's downsides to this particular journey as well as upsides, and that's only survivable if you have a good team around you. So I think. Yeah, that's extremely important that you find a group of like-minded people who are equally passionate about what you've chosen as you are, then that team is something which has to change and evolve constantly as what is required to be successful changes and evolves. So the ability to embrace that change and find a way to deal with it in a positive and constructive way as you go through these 180-degree changes in what success looks like and what it requires is the other key driver for key success factor in this journey. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Adrian. So first of all, thank you very much, Adrian, for taking this time. I know you're a very busy man. I just want to, again, reiterate to you and to the, the whole world now, because they're listening, is how excited we are as Motive to be your partner. And I am absolutely convinced that we will have more podcasts together as we celebrate our successes. And Adrian, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you for the time and very interesting conversation and look forward to the next podcast. So thank you. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.